You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Palm Sunday is just as much of the Easter story for us as Easter is. Because on Easter, it is uh, the beginning of what is known as Holy Week. And so uh, this week, we recognize the final entry into Jerusalem uh, by Jesus and his final week of ministry. And then the day that he gave his life to Christ uh, on Friday. Guess what, however? Uh, if you actually calculate the year and the day that Jesus rose from the grave, it is actually April 9, 30 AD is the calendar day that scholars have determined that Jesus actually rose from the grave. So guess what today is? Today is the actual day that Jesus rose again from the grave in 30 AD. So let's give a hallelujah for that. Jesus, thank you. God, thank you that you didn't stay in the grave. God, thank you that your resurrection ensured our salvation and declared to the world that death shall not win and that sin has been trampled on and the enemy is a liar. God, thank you so much in Jesus' name. So today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, it's good to know that it's an actual event. Easter actually rotates according to calendar days, but the day is an actual day. And there was an actual day that Jesus went to the cross, and there was a moment when he actually spent that last week alive. Uh, The moment had come. He had spent now 33 years walking the earth, uh, three years preaching the kingdom. It was calculated he was actually born uh, based on uh, Herod's uh, life date, that he was born in probably um, three years before what we now know is is the first year of A.D. So, um, So he was actually crucified in year 30. AD. So, but he walked the earth for 33 years. He was preaching the kingdom for three, and the moment had come. That Sunday, uh, prior to his uh, crucifixion and resurrection, uh, Jerusalem was celebrating probably the most, uh, you know, the most celebrated holiday in all of Jewish tradition. That is the holiday of Passover. We're going to talk about that later. But that day that he entered in, the same people that were shouting, Hallelujah, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, the same people were then shouting five days later, Crucify, crucify, as he was condemned, tortured, and killed. But on their way to Jerusalem, this is what happened in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We're going to unpack the cross today. At Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, it implies that he had a prior existence, for he is God, and he didn't come to be served, but to serve. That means it assumes he had the right to be served, but yet he didn't demand that, and he didn't come for you to, to serve him, but yet he came for this, but he came to give his life as a ransom to purchase that word ransom was a biblical term at the time of Christ which meant which meant to purchase a slave's freedom so he came to set the captives free to purchase to pay for him it says he came to give his life as a ransom to be payment to be a substitute for many 
Now, Jesus is a ransom, a substitute. He is the, the payment. That sets him apart from every founder of every religion in the world. While they all came to live and to be an example, Jesus came to die, to sacrifice, and to give his life as a ransom. And I want you to know this right off the top. The crucifixion is not a mistake. It is a mission. For Jesus, the crucifixion was not a mistake. It was a mission. It was the very reason that he came to earth. It was the very reason that he was born in Bethlehem and walked the earth for 33 years and preached the kingdom for those final three. Beneath all the controversy of who actually killed Jesus, the truth is God planned it. He saw to that it came to pass every single detail. In fact, there's over 350 fulfilled Old Testament prophecies in just the life of Christ, the majority of them in the last week, and the bulk of them, 80% of them in the last 24 hours of his life. This was no sad accident. This was the design of God. Jesus did not leave any doubt what he came to do when he was heading to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday in Luke 18, 31. He says, Jesus took the 12 aside as they were heading to Jerusalem, and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He says, he, talking about the Son of Man himself, he says, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, for they did not know what he was talking about. They still thought that somehow Jesus was going to be this 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 government revolutionary that was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish once again a victorious Jewish monarchy. But Jesus came to die. He was clear his kingdom is not here. It is an eternal kingdom seated on the throne of heaven. Again and again, he said, I must suffer. I must die, but I will rise. This was the plan. It was graphic. It was violent. It was bloody. So they proceeded to Jerusalem in Luke 19, and this is what happened. They thought uh, they brought the colt to Jesus that he had instructed them to bring, and they threw their cloaks, and Jesus sat on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. They were shouting, Hosanna, which means Please save us. Now we pray. The word Hosanna is a praise declaration and a prayer of help. It's a plea. Hosanna means help us, save us now. You're the one. You can do it. It says it was a cry for help for the Messiah. So they began to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest now in Mark eleven eight, he explains that they began to break off branches and lay it before him as fulfilled prophecy had foretold. But they spread these palm branches out, and that's why we call this Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday because on this day they they waved the palm branches and laid them down before him and shouted Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed. It's the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd saw this, and the teacher, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, 
You guys might know the rest part. The stones will cry out. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't need your praise. He loves it when you do because it fills your life with faith and acknowledgement of his goodness and glory to work in your life. But he does not need your praise. The very rocks will cry out. The earth cries out. Creation cries out and declares the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. We don't tip God when we sing a song and decide to stand up. It's not our way of, all right, you know, I'm in church. I'm going to give God some 20 minutes of glory. But, man, if that worship goes over 20 minutes, I'm sitting down. I love how Jesus said, he says, you know what? I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You cannot keep the glory of God. It is, it is shared and shouted in the praises of his people and around the world Especially this weekend as we head into Easter, man, this is an exciting, exciting year. I mean, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is victorious in the world. There's more advancements in the kingdom of God around the world than any other time in history. More churches are planning and world missions is growing at astronomical rates. However, persecution and, and attacks on the, the Christian communities around the world are unlike no other. And the church flourishes the most in times of persecution. And I love how he says, you know, you can't keep, you can't keep them quiet. You can't keep them quiet. I don't know about you, but you'll never be able to silence me. It says, 1,500 years of waiting for the Messiah, 300 years of silence between prophets, 100 years of Roman rule. They were looking for Jesus to be their Messiah and a revolutionary, but he did not come to start a government revolution. Jesus' final week after he, he walks into Jerusalem, he stirs the pot, he picks a few fights, he flips some tables in the temple, he loves on the poor, he confronts the religious, he heals the sick, he preaches the kingdom. By Thursday night, the Pharisees had had enough, but it was time to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And so on Passover, the, the, probably the biggest Jewish holiday of the year, the city was packed out with extra people, extra numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of extra people were packed into that little city of Jerusalem as they began to celebrate the Passover, and I'm going to tell you what the Passover is. Uh, in fact, it's probably the most painted picture on the planet. Uh, there have been more paintings of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper uh, than any other religious painting in the world. Uh, here's just a few of them. It's been painted over the years. It's been translated in many different cultures. Uh, and so what we're going to do real quick this morning is we're going to take a look at that night of communion of what happened on that last supper and we're going to see why the cross was so violent if there's a connection with that communion with the cross what really happened that night what does he want us to remember and why did this revolution have to end in a crucifixion so recorded in all four gospels we're going to read matthew matthew 26 verse 17 it says on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread that's passover the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. By the way, Jesus knew his appointed day, and guess what? You have an appointed day. 
Every person in this room has an appointment with destiny. You have an appointed day of your death. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for each of us to die. And then we face judgment. I hope you're on the good side of judgment. I know I am. He says, but a day will come. And he says, my appointed time is coming. He says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Tell them that. And you might be thinking, celebrate. How can he celebrate when he knows that he is about to be tortured to death? That's because in Hebrews 12, 2, it says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Who was the joy that he was looking to? It was you. It was you. You were the joy that he gazed upon as he looked to the cross. So he says, man, I'm going to celebrate because I see victory on the horizon So he says, verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and he prepared the Passover. Now, this was to be their last meal. That's why it's often called the Last Supper. They did not know it, however, that they were not going to have another meal with Jesus until after he rose from the dead. Jesus wanted this meal to memorialize his death, not his life. Every element about this meal is about the cross, is about his death. There are three main parts to the Passover meal that I want to talk to you about. It's two plus one equals one, W-O-N. So we're going to look at three elements that actually speak to the victory of Jesus Christ. The unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine, vine, which is wine, and lamb's meat. Three elements of every Passover meal that had to be present. Now, they would have all been reclining at a table, they wouldn't have been sitting in chairs. They all would have been reclining at a table that's about 18 inches tall. And they would have been sitting something like this on pillows. And the table would have been about this tall as they began to talk and fellowship. And over the course of that evening, Jesus uh, shared with them his plan for them to share the gospel to the world, which they were still unclear on. He also washed their feet. He went around the room and the the... The God of all creation who blew life into the dust and we were formed actually wiped the dust off his creation's feet. Sprawled out on pillows, he washed their feet, he prayed for them, he taught them about the Holy Spirit and he exposed a plot of betrayal that was against him. And in Matthew 26, verse 26, it says this, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. Now, the uh, the bread was flat bread. It was unleavened bread. And it was unleavened bread because uh, what they would do to make bread is that they would take the the dough from a previous day or previous month, they would keep a ball of dough. We've actually talked about this when we talked about unleavened bread in the parables. Um, but they would take this ball and they would add it to their new batch and it would ferment the, the actual bacteria uh, that are inside of that dough. It's actual living bacteria um, and it releases gas. And so they would add it to the dough and as they would work it in, that little bit of leaven or yeast, uh, that little bit of leaven would, would infiltrate the whole batch of dough and it would release gases as bacteria does. You know, so it releases these gases, and that is actually what causes bread to rise. As you know, it has like if you open a bread, as cut it in half, it's got like these little bubbles, air holes in it. There's actually bubbles. Those are those are air holes from gas bubbles that were released as the bread rises. So 
they did not have leavened bread. They actually would be eating unleavened bread. And why would they be eating unleavened bread? Well, it dates back, it's, it echoes back to Exodus. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt or know the story of Moses who, you know, Charlton Heston went in and told the Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and he said no, so God sent them a series of ten plagues to reveal the glory of God and also to um, prepare the people and to basically uh, cause the Pharaoh to, to, in a rage, release them. And anyhow, God showed himself on intentionally through these ten plagues. Well, the last plague was a plague of death. And by this time, the Pharaoh had said no, no, no. After every plague, his heart had been hearted. So God instructed Moses one last plague. He says, here's what you're going to do. You are going to release uh, the people, and you're gonna, I'm going to give you specific instructions, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute. But this bread, when they were released from Egypt, they did not have time for their bread to rise. They just grabbed what they had, unleavened bread, and ran out. And so when they were to celebrate the Passover, they were to celebrate this deliverance from Egypt by remembering God's deliverance by eating unleavened bread. Here's what it says in Exodus 13, 6. It says, for seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, that's Passover day, hold a festival to the Lord. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You see, that yeast over the years became a symbol of sin and bondage. So as they ate that unleavened bread, they began to declare as they ate that bread, this bread represents God's deliverance from slavery and God's deliverance from bondage. But what Jesus did that night is he took the bread and he gave it new meaning. As he took the bread, they would have been thinking about deliverance from Egypt. But Jesus took the bread, he broke the bread, and he says, this is my body now broken for you. Take and eat it. So the bread took on a whole new meaning. They did not understand what he was saying when he said, take, now eat, this is my body. Eat my body, they must have been thinking. Matthew 26, he goes on. Then later on in the evening at some point, we don't know, maybe later on in the meal, it says, then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he'd offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The second part of Passover was the fruit of the vine. It's wine. For a minute or not, it's not a debate here. It was fruit of the vine for sure, and it was a, it was a type of wine. But they would have known that this wine had very specific connections, very significant meaning that dated also back to that Passover night in Egypt. For Jesus, uh, sorry, for Moses was told by God, he said, this last plague is going to be a big one. Here's what I need you to do, Moses. I need you to get your best lamb. I need every household to get their best lamb, their perfect lamb, the best one they have. And they are to slaughter that lamb, and they are going to take the blood of that lamb, and they're going to wipe that blood on the doorposts of their house, on the top and on the sides. And then they're going to go inside, and they're going to prepare that lamb, and they're going to eat every bit of that lamb. And that night, 
God told Moses, he says, there's going to be a spirit of death that's going to flow, an angel of death that's going to flow through Egypt. And it's going to take the life of every firstborn son. He says, but when that angel of death comes to the doors, whether they're Egyptian, Jewish, or of African descent, or Middle Eastern, of any other nation, by the way, if you read the, the, the amazing story of Moses, about 20% of the people that, that left, that exited Egypt with Moses were not even Jewish. They were people that just bowed the knee to the Lord God. And he says, anyone, anyone whatsoever, if anyone, when that angel of death comes to the door, if anyone has the blood on the doors of their house and they have consumed and eaten the lamb inside, that angel of death will pass over that house and go on. And so that's why this holiday is called the Passover because it's a remembrance of the day that this angel of death passed over those that were marked with the blood of the lamb on the doors. And he says, that night will forever be remembered through that Passover meal where you eat that unleavened bread, which represents God's deliverance, how you were set free and you got out of there fast. God redeemed you and set you free from slavery. And that fruit of the vine, that wine is to remind you of the blood that was spilled, of that perfect lamb that was on that door. And so as he took that lamb, they would have been thinking of the day that Moses declared that promise. Ephesians, however, tells us differently. We're going to get to that in a moment. In Exodus 13, it says this. um, Actually, you turn the page. Exodus 12 says this. It says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. See, the wine is a reminder of that lamb's blood. But that night, Jesus took the wine and he gave it new meaning. He lifted it up. He blessed it. And he says, now, he says, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink it. Now, you got you to gotta realize these, these friends of Jesus, the 12 were there plus some more. They were all reclining. We don't know exactly how many, but we know the more than the 12 were there. They were all reclining around this 18-inch tall table, and all of a sudden, Jesus is changing everything that they've ever known about the Passover. He's turning every single event, every single part of it, into something that refers to himself. Reclining, eat your body, drink your blood. Man, this is weird. Maybe they're thinking Jesus had a little bit too much wine himself. They couldn't understand it yet. The third part is something that's not mentioned in the story, and the third part is the lamb. Now, as mentioned in Exodus passages, a perfect lamb was slain and was to be a major part of the Passover meal. Interestingly, the lamb is not mentioned at their Passover meal because Jesus himself is that Passover lamb. Jesus himself is the lamb. As it says in John 1, John the Baptist, as Jesus is walking to his baptism, John the Baptist knew very well. He saw that day, even though John the Baptist never saw it. He was put to death before Jesus' ministry came to fruition. But as he walked into that river, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, the disciple Peter 
says this. He says, we are washed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect, chosen before the foundation of the world who God raised from the dead. Jesus is that lamb that was slain that we are to eat and consume. The events that follow that meal have caused more debates and fueled more division than any other event in the history of the world. There are attempts to dispute it, to disgrace it, to discredit it, to discredit it and dishonor it, but you can't ignore it. A piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. For after Passover meal, Jesus goes out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's cornered and arrested in the middle of the night, betrayed and sold out by one of his friends, Judas. The God of heaven, the Lord of the universe in human form, the hands that made the universe are now in chains. The Gospels record through the four Gospels and eyewitness accounts and events in historical history give us the details of what happened that night. He was illegally arrested and beaten by the temple guards as early as 2 o'clock in the morning. He was dragged through town in bogus trials to build a case against him. The Pharisees, once they dragged him through a series of trials among their elders and the other Pharisee council, they didn't, they didn't send him to Pilate, where Pilate questioned him, mocked him, and abused him. Pilate then sent him to Herod, where Herod questioned him, humiliated him, and beat him. Herod then sent him back to Pilate all before noon, where Pilate again, in an effort to appease the crowd, began to beat him just short of death. But the crowd was not satisfied with just a beating. And they began to shout, crucify, crucify. John 19, verse 16, finally Pilate handed over them to be crucified. The son of God sentenced to die a torturous death like a criminal. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Gagatha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. What happens then is Jesus is taken to that place of the skull. He is stripped naked, hung up on a cross as high as 20 feet, stripped naked, his clothes gambled like a criminal by the soldiers. They took his hands and they drove spikes into his hands and spikes into his feet. The crown of thorns that had already been placed on him during his mocking under Pilate, his back already shredded like hamburger meat as he was tortured to appease the crowd now sentenced to death, carrying the cross as far as he could, then carried the rest away by a disciple. Jesus was taken to Golgotha, the place of the skull, hands and feet nailed to a cross. That piece of wood, that symbol, history has idolized it, despised it, gold-plated it, burned it, worn it, and trashed it, but he hung there naked, nails driven into his hands and feet, lifted up and mocked and spit on. 
I have a question. Why so brutal? Why so bloody? Why so violent? Why so painful? One of the most gruesome, morbid, and horrific ways to die. Why was it necessary? Why the cross? Why couldn't Jesus just wink and say, you're forgiven? I got you on this one. Why did it have to be so vile? Why did it have to be so violent? Why did he have to die? In John 3, a Pharisee comes to Jesus late at night and asks Jesus what it means to know God. And Jesus begins to share with him. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are reborn, unless you're born again. And he did not understand it. This Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he said, I don't understand and Jesus is like, it's an issue of faith, much like you can't see the wind. It's an issue of faith. You must accept and believe. And he says, I still don't understand. How can someone be born again, reborn into their mother's womb and, and be born again? And Jesus is like, no, you're born a physical birth and then you're born a spiritual birth. He says, I still don't get it. So Jesus, referring to himself, gives us the most popular, most quoted verse in all of the Bible. In John chapter 3, he says, Nicodemus, let me give it to you in one sentence. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, doesn't matter who you are, whosoever it is, if you will believe, if you will trust, if you will rely upon him for what he has done for you, if you will believe, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. See, in that passage, he actually gives us why the cross. But in verse 17 and 18, often forgotten, it says, verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. He's not here with a ruler smacking your hands, telling you you're a fool, straighten up. He's not shouting at you to cut your hair and to change your, your clothes and to get your act together. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. Through him, whosoever believes in him is not condemned or found guilty, but whoever does not believe stands condemned or guilty already because they have not believed in the name of God's son, his only son, God's one and only. Now, there are four things of why we have the cross in that passage. And the first one is this. Is it why a cross? It says, because the cross is perfect love. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So when you think of that cross, I want you to realize that what happened at that cross was a reflection of God's love. At that moment, that blood that was on that cross was a reflection of God's love for us. And he says, that cross is perfect love. It's perfect. And John, he pours it out. Jesus is God with us. God himself and his love stepped down, bearing what only God himself could bear, the sins of the world. All life-changing love is substitutionary. You can't love without taking a hit. Ask any parent. Love always will cost you. I love my kids, but man, I love my kids so much that I slept on their floor half the time when they were under three years old. How many parents have slept on the floor for their kids? How many parents have gone without sleep for years for their kids? Have had kids sleep in their bed against your will for your kids? How many of you have read the same book a hundred times for your kids or watched a movie a gazillion times for your kids? 
Love will always cost you. And marriage will always cost you. Your friendships, the troubles, the problems, you get pain, but the sacrifice is worth it because you love them. Parents sacrifice, listen, parents, I challenge you, sacrifice your freedom and time to equip and mature your kids. They will pay for it if you don't. You see, this is the issue of sacrifice. Either you make the sacrifice or they will. It's either them or you. Love says so. So Jesus said, I will take the sacrifice. It will be my sacrifice or it will be your sacrifice. But his love says, I will do it. Why a cross? Because the cross is perfect justice. Justice for what? Justice for our sin. The Bible says that on that cross was shed for us the justice of God. Justice because sin separates us from God. Born with a natural bent towards sin, sin is our willful, deliberate, frontal assault on the holiness of God. We are born dead in sin. You see, when that verse says that if we don't, Believe that we are already condemned. He didn't come to condemn us. We're already condemned because we're dead in sin. See, this is not an issue of turning bad people into good people. This is all about turning dead people into living people. See, born with a natural bent, sin is our willful denial and rebellion towards Jesus. Ephesians 2.1, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now made alive in Christ. Colossians, he tells the church in Colossae in 2.13, he says, You were dead in your transgressions, but he made you alive with him, having forgiven us. The issue of our life is not simply that we sin, we all do, but even more, we are dead in sin. We're spiritually dead without Jesus. The cross was the justice of God poured out on Jesus. Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 reminds us that all sin will be punished for the wages of sin is death. But Ezekiel 18.4 gives us a hard-learned lesson that someone has to pay with their life. Ezekiel says, behold, all souls are mine, says the Lord. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You see, we just like the loving God, the kind God, the high-five Jesus with the smile on his face. But you can't have a holy and perfect God without perfect justice. And the cross was that justice. Think about it. If, you're, if there was a pedophile who assaulted someone that you loved and the judge just said, it's all right, I'll let this one go, be on your way, I'll forgive you, and did that again and again, that judge would not be good. He would be wicked. He would be a wicked and evil judge because every sin must be paid for. Everyone must give account. 1 John 14, 10 says, In this is love, that not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be Here's a big word, the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a big word. It means wrath satisfier. See, this is love, that he took himself to the cross and became the punishment 
For our sins, he became the propitiation, the wrath satisfier. As he hung on the cross, he cried out in anguish. He could have felt no pain as he could have just, as the one who is the creator of the universe, he could have just held himself there and waited till the time was done. But no, he endured the suffering so that we could be free from our suffering. The sin of all creation was placed on him, every addict, every pedophile sin, every abuser, and guess what? Every good person who's lost without Jesus, the wrath of the Father dealt justly on the cross. Why a cross? Because the cross is perfect payment. His feet, his hands were nailed. Perfect payment. God's holiness requires judgment and payment for all sin. All misses. Jesus was our substitute. He stepped in and he took our shame and he bore our sorrows. Jesus is that payment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Matthew 27 gives us a very revealing moment on the cross where it says that about three in the afternoon as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when some of those that were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling out to Elijah, but he wasn't calling out to Elijah. And a lot of Christians have misinterpreted that as saying that that was the moment when the father turned his face from his son, for he bore the sins of the world and the father cannot look upon sin. That is not true. That's not what the Bible teaches and it's not what Jesus was saying. Some assume Jesus was shunned by the father at that moment. But his disciples would have known better. They would have remembered a psalm every good Jewish boy knew. You see, Jesus often spoke in partial verses. It was a rabbinic time-saving technique known as remez, where the rabbi would say a few words of a psalm that was very common, and everybody else would immediately say the psalm to themselves, or they would repeat it as a group. Jesus was actually quoting Psalm 22, Let's read that psalm and show how victorious it is and how much payment was being paid. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 verse 1. In the order of Ramez, all of his disciples, those that were Jewish, would have known immediately that the rest of the psalm applies. And this is what it says, verse 6. He says, I am a worm, scorned by men and despised by the people. All those who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Verse 16, a band of evil men has encircled me and they pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You see, Psalm 22 is the cross. Psalm 22 is the cross. And he was quoting Psalm 22, verse 19, but you, O Lord, You are not far off. Be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. 
for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, the Messiah. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. See, the father did not turn his face away, for the father and the son are God. They are one. And the Father and the Son cannot be separated. They are uniquely and jointly related in the Trinity and inseparable. So the Father looked victoriously onto his Son, the manifestation of himself in the flesh. He looked, and as Jesus cried out, Eli, lama sabachthani, he was quoting Psalm 22. He's saying, guys, you guys know the Psalm. It's happening now. It's happening now. Verse 27, the victory. The victory of the cross is all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust, those who die, will kneel before him. For, uh, future generations will be told about him and serve him. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. I love this, for he has done it. As he's on the cross, he's saying, it's happening, guys. It's happening. It's happening now. We're doing it. It's happening. Jesus was not crying out in loneliness and grief. He's crying out with a victorious shout. Psalm 22 is now. I have done it. The future generations are free. And at the moment that price was paid in John 19, 3, Jesus cries out, it is finished, literally paid in full. The cross is perfect payment. Why a cross? Here's the last one. Because the cross is perfect mercy. is perfect mercy violent and vile horrific and bloody and beautiful Matthew 27 verse 50 it says and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice he gave up his spirit by the way his life wasn't taken his life was given nobody stole his life he gave his life and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think, I think what it might have been like to see that, to be there, to hear it. All those Pharisees who condemned Jesus to a shame to show up at that cross. It was Passover, the biggest holiday of the year. That whole altar of the temple is filled with lambs and the altar is feet deep in blood as thousands of people were sacrificing their lamb in remembrance of the Passover meal while Jesus hung on a cross on the outside of town. But as he cried and gave out his last breath from top to bottom, it was torn. That veil that separated people from that holy place of God was now open for anyone through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus had torn it from the top as if God himself had said, enough is enough. And the curtain was torn and the wall between God and man was open. The earth shook, the Bible says, and the rocks split open. Some translations, uh, some gospels even say that at the moment 
that he died, that people who were just recently dead came out of the grave. Psalm 50, uh, sorry, verse 54 says, when the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. See, the cross is perfect mercy for by his stripes we are healed. Mercy for our sickness, mercy for our suffering, healing. Some of you will experience that healing in this life as God in his mercy heals. But most of us will experience perfect healing in the next life that was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. His mercy for us. See, this series is called The Colors of Grace. Grace means unmerited favor. And you have been given favor by God if you respond to the cross of Jesus Christ. But with that favor, grace is, is getting what you don't deserve, while mercy is not getting what you do deserve. See, that cross was mercy, saying you deserve death, but I'm going to take it for you. Sin has entered this world, and sickness is a part of this life, but I'm going to take that for you. Pain and suffering and sadness. We live in a broken world and people are confused and hurting, but I'm going to take that for you. It's mercy. As Christ cried out, they began to understand. They began to understand why the cross was necessary. As Christ was beaten and bruised, they began to understand that Christ is the unleavened bread. It was his broken body that was our deliverance for eternal bond, uh, from eternal bondage. From the slavery of our sin, he was the unleavened bread. As the bread was without yeast, Jesus was without sin. And we must take and eat this truth, and it must be in us to live. And as the blood poured out of him, they began to understand that Christ is the fruit of the vine. He is the lifeblood of salvation poured out for our sin. We must drink this truth if we are to live. As they gazed on the cross, they began to understand Christ is the lamb that was slain, the perfect lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And there will come a day when the enemy will come to you, but he will look at the blood on your life and pass over. Passover foretold the cruci uh, crucifixion. Communion declares the cross. See, we have communion. We're going to have communion right now. I'm going to ask uh, the band to come forward. We're going to watch a video. We're going to take communion this morning. But that communion represents the fact that we will never forget. We will never take it lightly. I will never, ever, ever neglect the, the price that was paid for my life. The cost was his life. So as we take communion, and by the way, we have the communion table there every Sunday for those of you that want to partake in, in remembering the Lord's uh, death every single week as we celebrate his resurrection through our worship and service. But as we take it today, I want you to think of that cross. For Passover is the crucifixion. Uh, before we do, I, I want to read a verse, but I want to tell you a story my, about my dog. My dog has a problem. He gets in the trash, and he gets in the hamper, and he takes him out into the yard, and it's embarrassing. 
I will spare the details of what's in the yard. But we have to do that. Both of our dogs have a problem. We don't know who is the instigator, but they seem to both participate. But we know our oldest one, Calvin, is more responsible. (laughs) He finds trash, and sometimes we find the trash on the floor, and he's nowhere to be found. He's hiding somewhere, and and what do we do? We're a little mad. We clean it up, but we soon forget about it. But later, he shows up with his tail between his legs, his ears down, and he thinks I'm mad at him. But what he doesn't realize is that I've already dealt with it. Somewhere, somehow, you got all wrapped up in some garbage. You've been digging in the trash, and you've got a problem. You've been dragging it out. Maybe you're hiding someplace in that closet with that issue. And you're ashamed. You're afraid to come out. You're you're afraid to expose yourself to the master. And you're avoiding God altogether. But listen, God already dealt with it. He already dealt with it. You don't have to be afraid. He loves you. That verse we read, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes, that means fully trust in him, total reliance upon who he is. If you will trust and rely on him, you shall not perish but have eternal life. See, what is our part? We must respond. So as we take communion this morning, we're going to watch a video, then we're going to take communion. And and as we do, I, I want you to take a few minutes just to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. I trust in you as payment for my sin. You love me, Jesus. Thank you. You are the justice of God poured out for me. Thank you, Jesus. Your payment for my sins. Thank you, Lord. And you are mercy that receives me gives me your grace and and then as when the band leads in worship we're going to open the communion tables and we're going to spend the last few minutes of our service uh remembering the lord's crucifixion next week the story doesn't end on the cross amen thank you for listening to the living with church podcast if you enjoyed this message we hope you come visit us in garland texas for directions and more information about the church go to www.livingwaychurch.cc